Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Robbie Hanna, Chair of Pediatric Hematology, Oncology, and Blood and Marrow Transplantation at Cleveland Clinic Children's. Dr. Hanna joined us last year to discuss best practices for pediatric cancer patients with autism spectrum disorder, and a few weeks ago to discuss Cleveland Clinic's lysosomal storage disease program. He's here today to talk to us about gene therapy for sickle cell disease. So welcome back, Robbie. I'm so excited to be here. Glad you're here. And Maybe uh, to start, remind us again about your role here at Cleveland Clinic. Of course, I am a pediatrics oncologist and I lead our department of pediatric hematology, oncology, and bone marrow transplantation. Excellent. We're going to talk about sickle cell disease and, and therapies for sickle cell and about gene therapies. And maybe just as a background, we have a diverse group that's listening in. Tell us a little bit about traditional therapies for sickle cell disease. Uh, this is a really very important disease that it highlights some of the challenges in our healthcare system, and if I may say, even the structural racism in it. Uh, it's important to know that this disease, sickle cell, was actually discovered and described back in 1910 by Dr. James Herrick in Chicago, when he noticed a patient who was a dental student come with a chest pain. He thought it may be heart attack. He looked into his blood smear with his resident and saw this uh, crescent-shaped vessels that really was the essence of what this disease is. It was at that time noted to be anemia and for very long called sickle cell anemia. And in the 1949, Dr. Louis Puig, he described that the reason why that happened, it is actually molecular change from glutamine in the hemoglobin B to valine, which becomes really uh, give that rigid shape when you are inside a hypoxic environment. And that uh, will lead to the causes of really clotting in the small vessels. That could would lead to pain. That could happen in the bone or many different organs, like in the lungs and many others that even the brain. And for a very, very long time, there was really no therapist. And even in children, many kids were dying. Uh, they didn't make it even to adulthood, especially because of infection. So many of these patients will lose their spleen due to infarct from this multiple uh, uh, episodes. And the kids were dying at very high until in the 60s, 70s was discovered that if you give them penicillin, it could save them until they can start to mount respond to vaccines. And then was noted that medicine called hydroxyurea that many of the oncologists are familiar with in the 80s and early 90s was used to be for a patient with high, uh, with sickle cell because it seems to help increase the fetal hemoglobin and that seemed to be a protective against the, some of the manifestation of sickle cell disease. And for so many decades until 2019 we had no other therapies that could help until really has been interest in the last decade from the NIH and providing more grants and support to pharma and to even principal investigator to come up and there was medicine 
called crezalizumab, which is an NTP selectin two that helps to really uh, make the cells don't clot together. That seem to decrease the pain crisis. There is also another medicine was that put voxelator that also seemed to really help increase the hemoglobin and decrease the pain. So exciting time that there is interest. And I also want to mention there was another medicine called L-glutamine that has been also approved uh, two years ago for the help to prevent further episodes of pain crisis. Excellent. So a couple of uh, therapies that came along, are these widely available? Are they widely used? Have they been adopted um, in, in the care of this disease? Uh, I wish that there is more access uh, to this patient, similar to any new medication. It takes time, one, for awareness of its availability, two, from access of payer for this. I will tell you, it's, uh, as a practicing hematologist, it's been very hard to even prescribe some, and you have to go through a long process of sometimes pre-authorization despite it is approved medicine. But I think it is uh, not an uncommon issue with any new medicine. It's exciting that there is more data, that it shows that this is really showing even in real world a difference. And just recently, last month, that the FDA approved the voxelator down to the age of four in kids. So we are seeing also this therapy is not only approved for adults, but also for children and teenagers. Gene therapy. So you mentioned back in the 40s, there was the identification of exactly what the defect is. Um, tell us a little bit about gene therapy and, and how that exactly works. I think sickle cell disease has been a prime example for gene therapy because it is a single nucleotide change and the sixth position of hemoglobin B gene on the chromosome 11. So it's only one. But it is fascinating, Dale, that it is have heterogeneous phenotype. And we are learning more and more about this disease. But at the essence, if we could correct that gene, hypothetically that you could correct the disease. And we know by giving a normal hemoglobin through a bone marrow transplant from a healthy donor that we can actually help prevent any further. So bone marrow transplant has been done for uh, patients with sickle cell since the 1984. But one of the challenges is finding appropriate donor for them. I, as a transplanter, I do consult frequently for patients with sickle cell, but only 17% of them, they can find an HLA match unrelated donor or even a related due to different reasons in our society. Among them, it's the lack of minority in our national marrow donor program. So I want to put a plug that I would love to see more representation and targeted recruitment from minority in our NMDP. And in the early 2000s, there has been attempt to do gene therapy by fixing the defect. But that was at that time, the technology was not very accurate or precise. And we are very excited that there is now two big categories of gene therapy. Uh, one of them is called gene addition. So we recognize this uh, scientific community that if we could insert into the cells a gene uh, DNA or an RNA production that could produce the normal hemoglobin or potentially the fetal hemoglobin that has a protective effect, then the patient will have a normal phenotype and able to live normal life, hopefully. And that has been the earlier phases of gene therapy. It is still does require, one, 
collection of stem cells from the patient. And I, that's not as easy as it sounds because this patient really bone marrow is a little bit environment harder to collect. So we use uh, not only uh, GCSF that many of our oncologists are familiar, but Plerexifor to help. Uh, and we don't actually, we learned that not to use GCSF anymore because it was inducing pain crisis. So we are using Plerexifor and we could collect enough number. Then number two is working with uh, pharma companies uh, that they are in biotech that they able to insert with a multiple variation initially with adenovector but now lentiviruses uh, that can insert a normal gene inside the cells and number three is give a chemotherapy to the patient to get rid of that defect we don't need to use very high doses but we need to create enough space for the cells to engraft and be able because we have learned also that if we could get 20 to 30 percent engraftment with the cells, that's enough to give a protection. The newer technology now in gene therapy that we are proud to also have a clinical trial for that, it is using more precise way. It is called a CRISPR technology. That it is can go directly towards the defect or where is the targeted gene and be able to literally cut that defected gene and replace that with help of the caspase gene with uh, whatever you wanted to either correct that uh, protein, uh, that gene that produce or the hemoglobin B or the one called BCL11 that it is inactivate the hemoglobin F production. So there are two different ways to do that. And we are more excited about this because it potentially will be more better for long term because of the concern about sometimes that insertion addition of the gene can target area randomly and cause potentially a cancer. So that's where we are looking into the next generation of the studies of gene therapies. How widely accepted are things like gene therapies to patients and patients' parents? And one can imagine that, you know, if you start talking about editing people's genes, people might be a little bit um, hesitant. Is this something that is widely accepted by patients or? I will tell you I'm shocked about how many messages and requests for this came. It is surprising to me last year there was a 60 minute uh, and there was multiple media production about gene therapy where it's an example of little bit the public uh, was at ahead of where the results were scientifically. And I don't think yet the gene therapy was at that time or the result uh, were enough to be able to say this is ready for a public use and more in clinical trial. Uh, however, there's really just at ASH in 2021 in December, great publication that even came in New England Journal of Medicine at uh, the phase three studies that are quite encouraging. And uh, hopefully some of this biotech company are going to go to the FDA and ask for approval. Uh, during conversation through uh, our current clinical trial, the families are actually concerned. And sometimes when they learn more about the details and they recognize the chemotherapy and how it is, they do become hesitant appropriately. Uh, I think the reason why so many of the families are willing and are taking this, it is really that how severe is disease. This disease affects the patient. We have patients who get six to eight times admitted for different pain crises. One of them was more than 100 days in the hospital 
on average over the last three day, uh, years. We know also that the life expectancy of them is in the 40. So that's why I think some of these patients are ready. And there has been studies uh, through one of our even medical students learn and we have done surveys. Patients are agreeing to a mortality rate of 5 to 10% if they can feel that this will cure their disease. It just speaks to really the suffering that they have and uh, long-term morbidity and mortality associated with this disease. Something that thinking back you, that you mentioned it just kind of struck me was that you see people and you're, uh, you do bone marrow transplants and stem cell transplants and that, that fewer than 20% of people who may come to you and would otherwise be eligible for a transplant um, can't find a donor. How do we fix that? How do we, how do we get more awareness to, to get people to get registered for, for, um, to be donors? So we've been involved with the community. We went to actually multiple times to churches to have a drives. There is really growing non-for-profit organization and patient advocacy groups and also through science. So we worked with John Hopkins and St. Mary in England to develop a haplotransplant protocol for sickle cell because it is really the older ways of doing haplo didn't work so well. There was a high rejection rate. So we have anticipated the regimen and we have very good results. So both from increasing awareness to have more donors, but also really recognizing the challenges that many of this society work and work in the science to develop more therapies specific for this disease. So when our haplot protocol, which is now a multi-center study going on called CTN1507, it uses an addition of medicine called thiotepa to the regular transplant, it seems to decrease the rejection rate by half and hopefully can offer that patient a donor from, could be his mom, dad, or half-sibling because they don't have a match donor. Excellent. So... This is a tough disease because, as you mentioned, it involves, you know, oftentimes damage to multiple organs, and um, there's a there's a, historically a lot of these patients have started in pediatric hematology oncology programs and sickle cell programs, and then there's there's been frequently an issue with as they get older transitioning to to care as adults, and I guess with that framework, and it's it's really encouraging to see that we have some new therapies that might change that with the gene therapies. Um, but what do you think an ideal sickle cell program for like the lifespan of a patient looks like? What how should we be designing sickle cell programs to 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 really provide the right care for these patients? Oh, Dale, that's the one million dollar question. It is real of more because. Our society is very different, and what it works in Cleveland, it may not work in Alabama or in LA. And there is a great work that has been done by the ASH, American Society of Hematology, and there was a paper by Dr. Julie Cantor uh, back in 2020 that actually suggested four different models of the care delivery. And we at Cleveland Clinic, we recognize that we truly have a responsibility and we are developing what's called sickle cell medical neighborhood because it's not enough for a hematologist. There's just not enough hematologists, adults that are able to take care of this. So the model that could help potentially is actually working with the primary care physicians and developing kind of... Uh, 
uh, hub model and a consultation where the care could be delivered potentially by the primary care because this patient as they grow they will have nephropathy they can have hepatopathy all of them have blood pressure issues mental health issues and it is beyond just the ability of a hematologist usually sometimes uh, example of a bigger places where there is more urban uh, cities there could be comprehensive uh, sickle cell program in the traditional way but it, that could work there but i think different societies and demographic can potentially develop their own protocol there are essential to have a hematologist a mental health pain a specialist i think it is very important because especially with the opiate pandemic there has been suffering for this patient despite that the ash and the cdc making a comment and a really clarifying that doesn't apply for sickle cell they are in the same category as cancer patient we know from publication that the number of death among sickle cell from opiate overuse is actually less than many other chronic diseases so the labeling that many of these patients is actually hurtful for them one of my patients said there is nothing hurts more than the pain itself other than the pain of caregiver not believing you so i think it's important to work together to learn because many even of adult provider they didn't see in their career in the last 10 or 20 a survival of sickle cell potential or few of them now they're going to see more and more because 98 percent of childhood with sickle cell they are going to make it to adulthood now so there's more of them coming and hopefully by having this resource of a program here that it is available for a different providers it would help to educate them and deliver the best therapy and care for them. That's excellent. What do you think are some of the other gaps that, uh, that we need to address in appropriate care for these patients? I think it is really, um, as a healthcare system, trying to make sure we provide access for this patient to the different. Many of them, they become government-based um, insurance, either Medicaid or Medicare. And I feel that it is a somewhat limiting factor for them to get more newer therapy sometimes, uh, including the gene therapy that we talked about. I, it is exciting time that we have more therapies now, but we do truly need to do the research to demonstrate that these therapies, one, are safe and two, are effective. And having access to the newer medication that they are approved because it is still the uptake for this new medication is challenged. So access to care is remain a huge gap. Before we talk about advances, we just need them to get to the system. Very good. Well, thank you for your insights today and being uh, with us for uh, this really, really important topic. Thank you so much for really highlighting this disease that uh, I truly feel has been neglected. And I am excited about what the future holds for sickle cell patients. To make a direct online referral to our Tossig Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancerpatientreferrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts 
on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.